This is episode 2 Delta of Free and Freedom for Thursday, July 5th, 2012. This is Karen Sandler. And I'm Bradley Kuhn. This is Freeze and Freedom. So uh, we were saying a few episodes ago that there were a lot of things happening that we ought to comment on. Yep. Uh, And we've sort of jumped the queue in some sense. We had somebody wrote in a very detailed question that we're not going to get to this time. Interesting question, though. And we will get to that. Uh, We also do, we're still promising an Oracle v. Google episode, which is not going to be this one. No, and we've got one more FOSDEM talk. From my Klingsveyer, which we'll do it. But right now, since there was news about this this week, we wanted to make sure we covered uh, the discussion about the issues of uh, restricted boot and the various distributions' positions on it and the FSF statement on restricted boot. Yep. So. Or UEFI secure boot, boot as a. Uh well, many I, refer to it, and well, I always actually, I, I, you know, a lot of people get frustrated with the FSF for uh, redefining the the terms that we used to talk about uh, to talk about this stuff, and I, I think that that's actually something really useful that the FSF does because a lot of the ways that we come about talking about these things have names that are already preloaded, so you know, have a lot of assumptions in them, and so I think that that's actually something valuable that FSF does, but I don't think that it's I think that if when you do sort of switch your vocabulary, it's important to talk about why. I, I don't want to get too overloaded by it, you know, or bogged down by it, but I just think it's worth noting. I, I think that's fine. I, I, I think that this is one of the cases where, and this is very similar to the term intellectual property, which which I've argued with a lot of people about. Uh, it's where the, there's there's assumptions in the terminology you're using. Yep. Uh, and this is this goes this is the same idea that's talked about in in Orwell's 1984. This idea that if you control language, if you frame language in a way of talking about something, um, you know, it's it, it somehow makes it it's a way to make it something different. It's a way it to make it like, sound like something yeah. different. Yeah. And it seems like this comes up a lot in conversation in the recent uh, Supreme Court. Uh, <laughs> healthcare decision too. just the way you the what you call something isn't necessarily what it is. Mm-hmm. And w- depending on what you choose to call it, it frames the way people think about it from 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 the get go. And that's one of the things that um, question copyright has been set up to do to sort of reexamine some of this stuff. And I think there's a lot of inspiration from the FSF in that because I think that you know, while I think sometimes we can get too caught up in terminology, like we've talked so many times here about free software versus open source software and whether that distinction is meaningful. But truthfully, at the end of the day, if we're, if you concede terminology, sometimes that means that you're conceding conceptually something very big about what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, I think that's the, and that's the interesting thing. I mean, this, this went back to, to the issue of uh, the original attempt to do this, which was called trusted computing. Um, and, and the, the, the question I think that, that, that FSF raised at those times, was a question of who is it you're trusting? And that question has come up again in this issue with mm. secure boot versus restricted boot. The question really is who, who is deciding what the security of your computer is? Yeah. So if you haven't had a chance to read the FSF statement, 
um, which just came out this past weekend and will still be this past weekend when we release the show, I hope, um, you know, you, you should take a chance to do it because I think it's very well written and it's very clear and it questions some of these basic assumptions. And actually, if you want to, now we're talking about uh, prerequisite reading, I think you'll get the most out of the discussion Karen and I are both going to have if you, if you read first the, uh, well, actually, maybe not first the FSF statement, but read the FSF statement and maybe before that read the statement it links to uh, from the Fedora position about what they're going to do with regard to handling uh, restricted boot uh, in Fedora and the two statements from Canonical limited regarding what they're going to do with Ubuntu, their distribution that they control. I don't know if that's required reading. No, it's it's, it's <laughs> probably it's it's the prerequisites. You know, you can sometimes go to class without doing the reading and you still get something out of it, but I always did the reading. Right. Actually right. I didn't and, always do the reading. And I guess I'll just confess right now that um, that I've read some but not all of the materials about this stuff. Um, so uh, if I sound a little less informed it's because I haven't had the chance to follow this as closely. So, so I think, I think the, the, the interesting thing about this is, that I always tell people first is there are different policies set by this commission. So first of all, we should talk about what it, what it is. Um, because if, if folks mm. don't dig deep and actually you'd have to dig deep into Matthew's previous, yeah. Matthew Garrett's previous blog well, post we about this. We talked about this on another show. Very briefly. But we but did talk about what it is. But okay. They're basically a committee. Um, of people that uh, that are uh, and, and that noise was Karen playing with things like always. Um, so uh, so uh, this time it's a cap to a water bottle, which I uh, carefully, meticulously removed quietly so that I wouldn't make any sound, and then played with it, and then picked it up and made a sound so, with it. UEFI is a, a so-called standard. It's designed by a committee of companies that pay money to be part of the working group that decides this. Uh, actually, one of the hacks that uh, people have suggested is we form a bunch of shell companies to buy memberships and then <laughs> control the committee by having mm -hmm. a lot of memberships in it. It's probably too late to use that particular hack. Um, and I don't know what would have happened if, if we'd even tried it. They might have found, found a way around it. Uh, but it they, sounded like wishful thinking to me yeah. more than anything else. But they've set two different standards for Intel X or basically x86 Intel or otherwise architectures and ARM architectures. Uh, the ARM architecture uh, rules are more restrictive and we're going to talk, let's, let's put those aside. Let's just talk for the moment about standard desktop and laptop platforms that are running x86 architectures. Mm -hmm. In that case, there's the, if you have this new UEFI restricted boot system, there is a top level key which is a signing key for all other keys. It's a meta key. It's sort of like a, um, uh, like a, like a key to sign other keys. And then you can have a list of other people's keys of entities you trust. So if you have various operating system vendors, you would theoretically have a top level key that somebody gives you or you create yourself and then below that. And in fact, I'm looking forward to using this myself. Uh, it'll probably be 15 years before I'm using hardware that has this in it. Um, cause I'm using hardware from seven years ago now. Um, but eventually if I have hardware, I'll generate my own key and then I'll sign all my own stuff because I'm a security nut and I'll have my own keys that I decide. And anytime I have to rebuild uh, anything, uh, I, will, I right. will sign it. But it's unreasonable to expect ordinary people to be doing that. Um, I don't think it's unreasonable, um, <laughs> in my view, uh, but... Um, ordinary people. But a lot of people don't <laughs> want to do that um, so, or know how to do that or don't want to learn how to do that. So those folks will get keys from vendors. Right. And that's where the problem comes in. And this is how Microsoft is using this to manipulate the process because they're saying, well, we're the primary vendor, so we're going to have control of the keys and the root level keys. 
Um, now, of course, any person that wants to on x86 hardware can replace all the keys themselves and, and, do, and sign all their own stuff and decide what they want to install, and that's all great. And it's actually all very useful for the hardware to support that feature. But the way this will be presented to users as, oh, if you want to put your own keys, you'll have to disable security. Right, yeah, right. Disable Disabling Microsoft. Disabling security, yeah, exactly. Disable Microsoft security to you do may, this. You may have an untrusted, you know, there may be untrusted software, um, you know, which is very scary to most people. Well, I mean, I, I think it's a great example that I know people who buy new computers, they basically buy a computer and it slowly gets more and more malware and it gets slower and slower and then mm -hmm. they just buy a new computer which is faster because yeah. they don't have malware anymore. And so and so this is the, a common occurrence for those people who, not people who listen to our, our podcast, but there are people out in the world that their common procedure is they use a computer until it has so not till the harbor breaks, but until it has so much malware they can't use it anymore. But I'm sure every listener to our podcast knows somebody who asked them about their slow computer. Yeah, and it had <laughs> malware on it, right? Um, and and I think uh, uh, FSF's point in here is that from a free software user's perspective, Windows, Microsoft products are malware that yeah. we want to protect ourselves from. Well, it's just also you know it's exactly what you were saying in the you know when we first started talking. What is trusted? Why should we trust Microsoft? Mm -hmm. Where, but, but by, by participating in this scheme, you're basically assuming that Microsoft is trusted and then everybody else has to prove that they're trusted. Right. And Fedora proposed, a, and, and Matthew Garrett, of everybody in the free software world, Matthew Garrett understands this process more. He basically decided to get involved with it. He became, uh, I guess, Red Hat became a member and he is a Red Hat employee, was able to, to get into the meetings and go to all the meetings and talk to them about this. And he designed basically a, a compromise scheme for Fedora to be able to do this. Now, Fedora, I think, is falling into the trap of allowing disabling security to be a common thing that people have to do to install uh, their own copy of Fedora that they make themselves. And then Fedora has another path where there's a official distribution of Fedora that will be signed with a Microsoft approved key. And if you want to modify that, you then have to do that whole process I talked about of generating your own keys and doing all that stuff, which most free software users will probably do anyway. Um, themselves and this and that way they, they can decide what's on their computer well, you know and I'd like to point out that free software people are really good about organizing in this way in part because there are people like you and I guess people like me who are willing to put in the time to create infrastructure and nonprofit structures around this stuff so there are some solutions that could come in where we could make fixes for everyone mm -hmm. um, in this scheme well and in fact um, what Fedora is doing is basically they're going to publish because they're going to continue to use GPLv3 software and that's going right. to come up more in a minute and one of the GPLv3 compliant things, if folks remember from one of the discussions about GPLv3, uh, is was regarding uh, whether or not basically GPL would have this feature whereby you were required to allow people to, to run um, installed versions that were modified because certain types of hardware were already in existence years ago that would say, well, you can install your own version because GPLv2 requires that you have the ability to install it. And they said, oh, you can install it all you want, but once you boot, when you reboot after the install, it won't work anymore uh, because it's not signed. Right. So the GPLv3 added a feature to make sure that not only could did you have to be allowed to install it, which both V2 and V3 require, but you also have to be able to run the installed modified version. And what Fedora's proposed is a basically GPLv3 compliant system because you can go back and redo the keys yourself. And they're actually going to publish as part of their GPLv3 requirements the details on how to do that. So in fact, Fedora is probably going to become the place where people go to learn how to do their own keys because they're going to do that as part of their requirements uh, in using Grub3. Uh, Grub, uh, GPLv3 version of Grub. Right. Too, there was something say. in the um, in the FSF statement that I can 
you know, that I was thinking about, I don't see it now actually, it was something like allegedly GPLv3 compatible or something like that, which confused me. And I was wondering, I don't mean to put you on the spot actually, but since I, I think you were involved you in about the Fedora section? Yeah, in the, the Fedora section. Yeah, I, I it was just it was it was strangely worded. It just sounded like it was there was something behind it, and I thought maybe you would know. The word alleged doesn't appear. That was my oh, search. Oh, it found. must be my read of you know the my impression of it. Maybe just say just search for compatible. I've totally derailed this discussion. I'm yeah, sorry. I mean, and, and it's making for very, very, very bad audio because you, you're telling me to search a document. I'm sorry. For words okay. that aren't in the document. As yeah, it it's out. just my impression. Um, so continue, and if, I'll just take a second, and if you don't so, mind me scrolling. So, uh, so the, the, other, the other thing that it discusses in this FSF document is the other the other another distribution's approach, which is, which is Canonical's uh, Limited's Ubuntu distribution. They, frankly, I, I would say, I think that Canonical Limited did not research as well uh, the issues. Uh, well, Matthew became, really became the, uh, you know, spent a lot of time becoming an expert. And actually, if you are, if we're talking about background reading, I mean, reading his series of blog posts over time on these issues. Yeah, because Ma Matthew Garrett wrote blog posts as he was learning this. So you can actually learn it along mm -hmm. with him by going back to his old uh, Dream With blog posts one by one and reading as he learns more and more. About and I it. thought they were very interesting. And as someone who's not as savvy with the, you know, the technology, actually, he wrote it very plainly. So I was able to sort of follow as he went along. And, and uh, yeah, I, people know I've been cr critical of Canonical Limited in the past. So I guess people won't really believe me <laughs> when I say that I think they did a much worse job because I, I'm already kind of a biased party. But I think they really did. When you read their statements, they they didn't get that expertise and them being a competitor to Red Hat probably didn't want to trust Matthew's analysis and decided to do their own and didn't do it as well. And so they came to conclusions that are basically hyper-conservative. They're anti-GPLv3 incorrectly, um, and they aren't real solutions to this problem because they're, they're basically going to get versions of Ubuntu out there that, that users can't very easily upgrade. Now, my theory about that is that they are, so, if, if they, either they were incompetent or they have a subtle, like, manipulative plan. If, well, this is about dropping grub. I mean, I. Well, yes, because they, they're basically saying we can't put any GPLv3 software into our distribution now because we have to be able to sign the keys and it's a GPLv3 violation, so Canonical says, for them to, because, because if somebody, if one of their third party vendors signs something with the keys that are now Microsoft's keys and, and uh, the details I don't think matter that much. You can read them as much as they're there in Canonical statement. If it sounds muddy, it's because it is. There's no, and as the FSF statement says, I, FSF's analysis, and I, I can confirm this that, that in my analysis as well, I can't think of a scenario on x86 well, so that this is the thing that confused me when I was reading it. This Karen you know, does not want me to finish that sentence. Okay, go on. Sorry, <laughs> I was I was almost done. I was just oh, saying. Sorry, sorry. Well, I can't think of a scenario on x86 where Canonical be forced to disclose keys as they say that they would be by GPLv3. Right, and I, that was just reminding me that I I it, that paragraph in the FSF statement sounded a little I don't hesitate to use the word disingenuous because of our previous podcast with Deb Nicholson about the word disingenuous, but it seemed, it confused me because I didn't really see, um, now I'm looking again, I apologize everybody at the text to see what it was that I was thinking of, but, um, uh, but it's the paragraph where they say, where, where is that? Where they were saying that, yeah, sorry, <laughs> where they were saying we can't, we, we, we've been unable to, oh yeah, here, we've been unable to come up with a scenario where any, where Ubuntu would be forced to divulge a private key, a private signing key because a third party computer manufacturer or distributor shipped Ubuntu on a restricted boot machine. 
And then but there is no that, scenario. So, but it seemed really disingenuous to me because of the whole, you know, whatever deals that they're having with their third parties. Well, no, but the thing is, is if, so on x86, if in the worst case, a signing key, a, a, a third party redistributor of, of Canonical Limited's Ubuntu distribution turned out to have signed something and shipped it that was GPLv3, i.e. Grub or anything else, all Canonical would have to do to c come into compliance with GPLv3 would be to publish the same rules uh, in details about how to replace the entire key infrastructure with your own keys, which we've already said you right, can do. Right. So, so that would be the compliance thing. So, so as I was saying, either Canonical is didn't do enough research to understand this, or they're being super subtle hmm. because they don't make the distinction in the way that Matthew does in his blog post with regard to Fedora between ARM and x86. Because Matthew basically throws up his arms about ARM, as it were, <laughs> and says, there's nothing we can do about ARM because they require you to be locked down and you have to use Microsoft keys on ARM. And there's no way to get anything on this. And Microsoft's aligned with the carriers, i.e. telephone carriers, uh, on this issue because the carriers want to do lockdown as well. And they're happy right. to have Microsoft help them do these lockdowns, even on, say, Android, for example. Um, so th that, that, that extra restriction on ARM, maybe what Canonical Limited is actually doing is they're manipulatively confusing everything to make people think, oh, well, GPLv3 is the big problem here, when in fact, it's the ARM restrictions that are the problem that make it impossible. And they don't make the distinction between x86 I and ARM because they're, so, they're hoping so that there the, will be lockdown versions of Ubuntu on I ARM. I see. So this is the, because this is all, this is all sort of connected to the ARM restrictions. But, you know, it's funny because we have two very different knee jerk reactions. My reaction mm -hmm. is to say, oh, well, what is this about? And, you know, I'm sure everybody is well intentioned in your. <laughs> oh, Canonical is not well intentioned. They're either incompetent or they're manipulating the situation and, and conflating the x86 and ARM situation. Well, but I could they're doing one or the other. It's inflating those issues is not necessarily being as nefarious as you might. Well, it's either nefarious or incompetence. It's one or the other. Well, that's the only two things it can be. And, and fine, maybe it's incompetence, but that, that they should have had somebody. Certainly they have enough employees. They could have had somebody do they what do Matthew Garrett did. They have a Garrett lot of savvy, savvy employees. Right. And they could have done the work that, that Matthew Garrett did. But it's just, it's just a classic example of how it's easy to scapegoat GPLv3 and say, oh, oh it's, yeah. it's the license's fault. The license, it's the license's fault in the sense that the license is really trying to stand up against yep. lockdown of hardware such that you can install modified versions and run them. Well, this is why I think the FSS statement is so good, is because I think it sort of says, no, 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 what we we don't need a less restrictive license for for you know in, instead of grub we need we need a more, you know we 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 need the freedoms in GPL in order to make sure that we we have the freedoms that we need yeah. to have a real secure boot. You know, and and part of me the the sort of sick twisted part of me <laughs> wants it to become the case that most hardware is locked down and most of the software is not GPLv3 because then it'll vindicate all of this because then mm. basically there will be no software freedom anymore. Software freedom will be over because it'll only be freedom. Doesn't to want system. this. Well, because I think you don't want this. Well, I don't want it, but I, I, I some, actually that's right. I don't want that, but sometimes, many times, I think that's the only way people, most people, will take this problem seriously until software freedom is basically just the freedom to study. Because that's what it would be, is you get the freedom to study the source code, but you wouldn't get the freedom ever to run modified software ever in your life. Like basically every one of us who's our, you know, mine and Karen age, ages who got hardware and learned how to modify stuff and improve it yourself 
because we had stuff. I mean, I got my Commodore 64 and granted it was mostly proprietary software, but it was also much of it was written in assembler and I could actually oh, yeah. disassemble it. And much of it, and I actually had the specs to the hardware that came with the Commodore 64 and you could take it apart and, and it told you what every chip was. You know, that, that culture that, is now embodied in free software, embodied in Maker Faire uh, type culture, um, that will be gone in a generation if this kind of stuff succeeds. Yeah, I sort of was joking about terminology before, but the term open source is what that suggests. <laughs> Just the, the freedom to study. So I was giggling inside when you said that. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. that's, and, but the thing is, is that, is that, and this ties up into all my worries about the fact that most people don't really care about the freedom to install modified versions because most people don't do it anymore. I don't do yep. it that often myself anymore. Yep. Um, and I know how to do it. It's just I don't have time to do that uh, and, and spend the time installing modified versions. So when most people don't do that, you know, I'm running a build on my phone that other people didn't. I always thought I was going to, I was going to get my Android build Yeah, that's myself. how I felt too. I was always going to take the time to get around to and, it. And I'm, I'm running a build that other people did. Yeah, which I'm grateful for. But right. they won't be able to do it. If I mean, that's the thing is that, is that what I was saying before is that we're good at organizing and collecting in mm -hmm. groups and we have that ability because we have our freedoms. Mm -hmm. But if we don't have our freedoms, then none of us will be able to do it and none yeah, of us will and, benefit from it. And and so, and I'm sort of in, in, inspired by, by what Seth Schoen said me years ago, which was I should stop worrying about DRM because every six months to go by the DRM isn't uh, the standard, uh, the, the much less, becomes exponentially less likely that it will be. And it's probably the same here because this is basically software DRM. I mean, we, we fought the music DRM fight. Right. We're, we're fighting the video DRM fight, which we've almost won. Netflix is sort of the last place, last uh, holdout of, I guess that and HBO Go are probably the... Two Boy, places. I don't even know what's going on, and uh, I've watched so little. Yeah, but it's. I, don't even it's, know I mean, the, the, the thing is, is there's there's a lot of sources and ability to get stuff non DRM'd. Oh, okay. Um, uh, but then there are a few holdouts. But it's sort of like where music was ten years ago, five years ago. Mm -hmm. um, but meanwhile, software DRM is going to become the standard. I mean, that's what Apple wants. That's what the carriers want, and that's right. what Microsoft wants because Microsoft wants the carriers to like them. <laughs> <laughs> so, right. so it's really, really bad um, in this regard, and and well, and uh, it's in the interest of all of the vendors. I mean, that's that's part of the problem. Most of them. It's not I mean, I it's wish not we had actually talked to like yeah. some of the small hardware manufacturers about this. It would well, have been and, and they're mentioned in the in the FSF statement. Yeah, and, I saw that. And and I think I think that's that's really the issue. Um, but I have talked to, and I'm helping some of the small hardware vendors uh, with with compliance uh, because they they generally do want to be in compliance ahead of time. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll have more on that uh, at some future date, uh, which is all good news. The problem is is that they they are in an industry fighting against a lot of people who uh, who have a lot more power and a lot. More and have an interest in excluding them. Yeah, and 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 they can and they can get runs. I mean, I mean, I, I think I think we have to get to the point where we're more comfortable paying more for hardware. I think that's part of the problem. Yeah. Because mass-produced lockdown hardware is much cheaper to produce. I mean, that's the, the that's why Apple is so profitable. Because it, the funny thing is, is that is that if you just pay if if you just ran the margins thinner, right? Apple makes hundreds of dollars on every iPhone sale. If they only made a few dollars on every iPhone sale, it actually would be the true cost of producing the hardware. So people actually are comfortable paying $400 for a phone if it's from Apple. Um, mm -hmm. We just have to get comfortable paying $400 for all our phones so that we have sourced phones that are both sourced in a way that treats workers well and sourced in ways that the companies don't feel they need to do this kind of lockdown, have control of the market. We have actual diversity in the market. Yeah, I mean, this is actually what I, I mean, I think this is sort of a common thread is that we can make, a, we can, we as a public can make a big difference through our consumerism and we should put our money where 
you know, where we think ethical decisions are being made. And we can do this across the board. And this is one of the reasons why, you know, I purchased from Zareason and, you know, I, I, I just think, you know, what I said, I actually spoke on a panel about DRM uh, um, at SIGGRAPH in like 2006. It was, yeah, it was the, a long time ago. Yeah, it was panel. the first time I ever spoke publicly I mean, I at it, all. Yeah. <laughs> and I was terrified, but that was sort of, it was a huge audience. And I well, was, you must have had to, to do class presentations and stuff. Not very many. No. And that's different. I guess. Different when there are press people. It's different when yeah. the, the panel was recorded and, you know, and there, there were, I think there were over a thousand people there. Mm. It was really, it was, it was for my first public appearance. Yeah, that I, was really I, stressful. I, I remember. I remember. <laughs> um, but, um, but one of the things that I said there, and it's funny because it's been echoed throughout, you know, the last whatever six or seven years is that whole like, you know, that we need to make choices with where we put our dollars because that, in effect has set, makes such a powerful statement. We can't do it individually. We have to do it as a, as a group and as a block. But if we do that, we can make real change. Yeah. I, I, the only thing I don't like about Which that is what answer happened is in the music industry. Yeah. But that's, it's a little too much of a libertarian answer for me to feel comfortable. I'm not with. saying it's the only answer, but I'm saying, you know, if you're sort of thinking, Oh, this sucks. What can I do? Well, you know. well, I mean, I think, I think, and, and yes, and I think the thing you can make a difference is, is don't buy phones that can't run Cyanogen right now. I mean, that's, I mean, not, not that I'm the biggest fan of Cyanogen, Cyanogen includes proprietary software, but the, 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 this is going so far that it's actually going to stop the ability for Cyanogen mod to exist. I mean, yeah. that's where this is going. And I think if people, people don't really understand this. And, and one of the reasons the industry does this, and I, I, this happened by, just to tell an old story, this happened with, with the DRM issue. It happened with the issue of what was called the broadcast, broadcast flag. Right. Um, it was a process by which a bunch of industry people got together and decided they were going to do a certain thing. And it was all so complicated uh, to get into and get involved with. And, and frankly, the EFF did a lot of work in FSF. Uh, when I was at FSF, this went back when I was in John's job uh, at the FSF uh, as executive director. We did a collaboration with the EFF to deal with the broadcast flag situation because it was it was affecting not just the ability to record stuff is affecting the ability to produce software that recorded stuff because you had to have lockdown hardware to be able to say, Oh, I'm broadcasting stuff over the HD over the airwaves. Uh, I'm going to set a bit. And if I set that bit, you can't record it. And the only way to guarantee somebody's not recording it is to have all hardware locked down. The, the music, the, the television and movie industry did not have enough power at the time to force that issue. The problem is in the mobile telephone space, in the, in the device, anything that basically gets on the, uh, carrier controlled networks, there is an industry cabal basically that has enough power to do that. It's Microsoft plus the carriers. Um, and, and quite frankly, as much as Google is an ally and they're continuing reaching Android as open source, they don't, they don't care. They're, right. they're totally neutral on this issue. Yeah. Google is completely neutral. They don't care what happens once the thing's in the device. They want all the source code to be out there initially, but once yeah. it's in the device, they don't care if it's locked down. It's just they yeah. don't care. They don't no, have a position. And, and in fact, if somebody else wants to lock it down, that in the end tends to run in their favor. Um, yeah, I, I for think their, I really for their think revenue model. I think, I mean, I don't, I'm not saying, I'm not, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I, I think that they're generally a good actor in this space. I just, well, no, I think they're purely neutral. I think they're like, yeah. like, uh, like, uh, like lawful neutral or something. Actually, can't be lawful neutral, but, but, uh, um, but yeah, they just, they just don't care which, ha what happens because if it's an Android device, it, it gets done what Google needs to get done, which is to right. deliver their advertising. Right, exactly. To you. That's my point. They just want to deliver yeah. advertising and they can deliver advertising basically just as well on a lockdown device. I could see Google's position changing. 
um, for the negative if they didn't have such a powerhouse of control of online advertising, right? Google as a, as a hollow, like if, it, if Google, something went totally wrong, Google, and it was a hollow shell of the company it used to be, they could turn really evil really fast because they'd be oh, desperate sure. to control their advertising revenue they still had. Um, at this moment, because they have so to, much control, yeah, that's not gonna they just don't right care. Now. Yeah, it's, yeah, they have so much control of the online advertising industry. They're not worried about it. So, but I, I think, I think, but the problem is they, they're certainly going to be neutral in all this. They don't have a position on what happens on ARM. They just want to make sure it's all Android devices. Yep. Um, and, and so, and so it's, it's really going to be tough as we face this issue. If, if ARM devices become more common, I mean, I'm not running to an ARM device as my primary computing device for various reasons. Um, I don't think that uh, Karen and I were actually talking about this before the podcast. I think we're both in agreement that this is not going to become a arm is not going to be the tablet device. Not going to be the only computing device everybody has anytime right. soon, but it's going to be an important computing device for yeah. a lot of people. Yeah. And, and, and if they could have gotten it, the thing is when you look at what they did on arm, if they could have gotten it done on X86, they would have, it's only because Microsoft doesn't have the, the like deep control of the X86 market. They used to, hmm. I think that 20 oh, years ago, 20 years ago, this would happen on x86 as well. They don't have the server wow. market anymore. Windows, Microsoft does not control the server market like they did. That Basically, is really it was interesting. If you look like 25 years ago, Microsoft and Novell control the entire server market on PCs. It's NetWare and it's Microsoft. That's right. all you get. That's true. Linux-based systems did not have have the inroads that they do, and and because it's only because of the GNU Linux server market that there is. There is this. There is any hope on the x86 side. That's the only reason. Yeah, I because because that. people cannot bear with Dell gives me a GNU Linux distribution that I must use, right? That right. I can't modify. Everybody's used to their sysadmins being able to say, oh, "I'm going to use a different distribution," whatever. Right. So, so it's it's. I I, I think that. And one one last thing I want to say. Um, I think I told you about this, Karen, a while back. The. Uh, there, there has been some really criti heavy criticism of Matthew Garrett, uh, mostly coming from Alan Cox on the Fedora list. And I, I, I want to draw attention to that, not because I really agree fully with Aaron, uh, with Alan. I sent some private emails to Alan saying, basically, I think you're being too hard on this. Um, Less private now. Um, yeah. But <laughs> the thing is, is I, I'm not saying what he said. Right. Back to me. Um, I mean, it's a message I sent, so I can say I sent a message to Alan. Right, which right, said, right, right, right. Um, um, and I guess I disclosed that he did write back. Uh, so I guess that's the only private part that I disclosed. Um, but I, I basically, I think Matthew realizes the compromise he's making. He's making the best of a really bad situation. I, I, I don't, I don't think he's done wrong. I think that if you look at what Red Hat's able to do as a company, it's probably the best they could do. I, I don't think they did enough. And that's why I'm glad the FSF is there to say Fedora's not doing enough. But then when you line up what Canonical said to what, what, Right. What, uh, what Red, I want to make sure I compare distribution, distribution, company, company. So if you line what Canonical Limited said up to what Red Hat said, Red Hat's a lot better. I mean, it's by comparison, they're above and beyond. I think in the abstract, even the Fedora thing has some real issues to it because it, it falls into this trap of, oh, I want to install a modified version. I have to disable security on my computer. Yeah. I, well, I thought that was probably the most, the most important point that the FSF highlighted. I, I thought the, that their statement was really good in that regard. That's nice of you to say. Did you work on it? Actually, I don't know. I did actually. Yeah. Oh, you did. So good yeah. work. So uh, yeah, I mean, it's John. John did most of the work. Yeah. I mostly just complained. <laughs> um, and then he fixed things that I complained about. <laughs> he's a really good writer. It's very simple. yeah. It's 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 very it's very well written. Um, and I'm sure Josh Gay uh, was involved too in the, mm -hmm. in the drafting. Um, but uh, it was mostly because I'm on the board of. That's 
most of our listeners know I'm on the board of directors as a volunteer uh, for the FSF. So it was mostly John as executive director sending it to one of the directors who is knowledgeable in the space and me writing back. That's what directors do. You send them stuff and then they tell you it's all wrong. And yeah. I mean, most <laughs> I of what they want you to change. Most of the organizations that I'm involved in, um, I've tried to encourage sending really, you know, sending important announcements by boards, of, by, yeah. by the entire board, if not certain members of the board, just to make sure. Well, they, well during drafting. Like that's the whole point of having, I mean, not the whole point, but one of the advantages to having directors is that, you know, and volunteer directors is they're people who are knowledgeable and care about the issues. So it's, it's yeah, I, I mean, I was, uh, Stallman and I obviously were probably the, the, by far the most knowledgeable directors on this issue, mainly because we followed it for a while. Uh, yeah. This restricted boot issue. Um, it's, it's complicated, right? You have to be an expert in the space. I know Matthew Garrett. He's the, Matthew Garrett's the person I email when I don't know what's going on yeah. because he always knows, but I know he spent a lot of his time. Yeah. Uh, and Red Hat was funding him to do it, uh, to, to, to learn all this stuff and get involved because it's, it's so complicated and it's designed to be complicated. Like I was saying, like the, like the, the, the trusted or the broadcast flag. It's designed to be complicated just so that it's difficult for new people to figure out what's going on. Was Stallman actively involved in this draft too? Um, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't that. actually know mainly because John was sending it. Oh, he sent it separately to you. I, so I got it separately, and plus oh, okay. I was disconnected for a while and when I was being drafted. I understand. Yeah. Jeez, uh, you really, you look like you're asking me like, like, uh. I'm sorry, we just didn't really, I just was just curious. Very nosy and it, just, questions. it just came out. It, well, I found that when I was writing things and someone was involved, he usually improved my draft because anything I said that sounded unnecessarily complicated or confusing got pointed out right away. <laughs> so he's, he's really good in that regard too. So I, I so I think that the folks need to follow this issue. I, I, in the middle of the whole, as as FSF called it, uh, treacherous computing, uh, that whole which the the, the trusted chip stuff, um, it became really clear that there it was only going to be used in corporate environments where they wanted to lock down something on a on a, in a public floor you know, kind of usage scenario where there's some public floor in the company, public computers that people can walk up to. Not public, but basically any employee can walk up to, and they wanted to make sure that it was not going to get messed up by something, by malware, or whatever. And that's pretty much the only places that that chip turned on. And most everybody I know turns it off on the BIOS, and it never really got used. So I, I at the beginning of this restricted boot stuff i sort of thought that was what was going to happen here as well um and it sort of is what happened in in x86 i don't think that it's going to be that successful on x86 my thing that i'm most worried about is the arm side because because right. it will it's exactly what the carriers want right um but hopefully the, hopefully people will rebel um i mean i i hope that and this actually plays into my environmentalist argument because if people keep their devices longer this is less likely to work. Right, but people won't. Really? Really, they won't. People won't keep their devices longer. How do people have all this? I don't understand like how people have money to buy new phones every year. I don't really understand either, but people who don't have a lot of money do buy phones constantly. And, you know, our phone already, because we have the same phone, is quite old. HTC Dream. Yeah. And I've had a lot of people say, wow, you still have that thing? People who don't necessarily have a lot of money, it's really interesting. People seem willing to spend money on devices like this. Well, some of it's the it's the carrier loss leader scenario, right? Because they're because they're basically signing contracts with right. the companies to stay with them and then overpaying on a monthly fee. So they're sort of buying it like a layaway, which People, has always been the manipulation of the poor. Right. That 
retailers have done. People just don't think of their phones a little bit differently. They don't, they don't necessarily think of it as being so wasteful to, you know, to discard old hardware and, and, you know, and get a new phone. They think that if they want to be current and, hmm. you know, living in the modern world, they need the newest phone. Living in the modern world, I have a device that I carry all over the world and can phone anybody else who has a similar device on the planet. It's a pretty modern world. I mean, I, I, I'm with you. Look, I just saying we're not representative in this regard. And get internet access almost anywhere in the industrialized world. Mm -hmm. That's pretty. Um, it's pretty cool. Pretty modern. I agree. I just think you know you have to understand that most people don't think of their phones in that way. K9 does run very very slow on that phone. I don't know if you noticed that. I don't know if you use K9. I do sometimes, but it's, not that often. It's very slow. Yeah, it no, is. That's slow. fine. I don't care. I'm, I'm used to. I'm used to. I, I, well, but look, I started in batch computing. Well, look, hey, we're used to making compromises also for what we think is right. Right. And a lot of people aren't. So. Oh, that's and that's and that's sort of the worst story about this restricted boot stuff. Yep. Uh, because people want the malware to go away, and Microsoft's going to market this as. Oh yeah, oh. absolutely. As we Absolutely. have a solution to malware forever. Yeah. And, and the problem is, is that Microsoft has been generally a bad performer in this field in the past. And so people will sort of see this and they'll think, oh, wow, okay, this problem is going away. Oh, you know who our unlikely bedfellow allies are? Who? People who write the, the semantics and stuff, who write virus scanning software. This puts them out of business. <laughs> we need to convince them that they need to be against restricted boot. That's funny. Because it puts them out of business. They're like a they're like a strange bedfellow. They want to keep selling their proprietary software that finds malware on Windows. Right? This puts them out of business, doesn't it? I'm you know, I'm I I can't even comment on that. <laughs> well, I mean I don't care. I, I mean I, I don't care who, who we have to ally with to stop restricted boot in some sense. Well, I mean I'm with you, but sometimes it, it, it really does make a difference who you ally with. Well, I don't, not that I want to ally with them. I just want to convince them that they need to oppose it. I don't want to like be like joint I don't press think release. I honestly thing. don't think you're going to need to do any convincing. So then why aren't they fighting against it? I guess they don't know they how. They may be. We, may, we need to teach them how. They may, they may be. Well, they're probably... I don't know. We, 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 we probably evil? wouldn't know about it. I guess you're right. Yeah. It, is, it would be pretty evil of them for, to fight against it for that reason, right? I mean, it's just such an such a why evil reason. Why wouldn't that be in their business interest? It's in their business interest. Which isn't, but, isn't that their duty? I agree that, that. There's nothing illegal about it. it, it I, well, I'm not supposed to use the word evil anymore in this podcast, but I think it's pretty evil if your goal is, I want to make people, we want to sell a solution to make people's lives, basically we, we rely on people's lives being worse and we don't want their lives to get better in another way. But this is a way. classic, it's a classic business model. It's, it's evil. I agree with you. Ah, she's agreeing that something's evil. This is the first time I ever agree with well. me that something's evil. I still don't like the term, but um, yeah, but it's it's pretty. But I would say that uh, that uh, this is one of those situations where it's, you know ethical outcomes and corporate interests are not aligned. Right. Well, Fab actually uh, suggested on a recent Fab uh, Fab uh, Chanel, one of the hosts of Linux Outlaws, will just say that as uh, a, po a podcast actually that's co-hosted by our uh, producer uh, Dan Lynch. Uh, Fab is his co-host on that show, and on Linux Outlaws, a recent episode, uh, Fab hinted at the idea that maybe some of these virus scanning companies actually write some of the viruses. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, he That's a hilarious... He has no evidence for it whatsoever. Okay. Typical Fab statement. Of, right. Maybe they write the viruses themselves. That's a hilarious It's, it's like allegation. Ancient Aliens. You ever seen this show on the History Channel? You don't no. watch... You don't watch crappy TV like I do. Um, so, so, yeah, there's this show on the History Channel called Ancient Aliens, 
And it's one of the, it's like the Nostradamus shows. I was watching a Nostradamus thing last night <laughs> as well. So it's one of these things where they, they say that they start every segment with, could it be that, like, could it be that aliens were the ancient Egyptian gods were actually aliens? Is it possible that it's like they don't actually state it as facts because there's no evidence that this is a right. fact? Well, but, they would argue that there is evidence. Well, and they have this guy there's with this guy with weird hair on there, like he has like like spiky hair in all directions, and he uh, he he has all this evidence he believes. Well, I, actually, that evidence is it's been you know I, this is this is really off topic, but I I grew up going to the Archaeological Institute of America meetings on where the regional meetings of where I grew up, and um, and there were a, a number of there were a few people who were very knowledgeable about a lot of these theories and would give talks regularly about you know about these what sound like really off the wall theories, and they make some interesting. It was very entertaining. I mean, I admit it, I was like ten, but <laughs> but it's still you know there's just a lot of information about about this. Stuff. There is some evidence, whether it's compelling is something else. Yeah. <laughs> There's lots of lots of vague vague things that are very old can be interpreted very. It's like the Nostradamus thing. Right. It's like it's like if he really predicted Hitler, why did he say Hister? Right. And why didn't he just say there's a dude? His name's gonna be Hitler. He's gonna he's gonna come from Germany. He's gonna invade France, and then France is gonna take it back. Like he didn't say all that. He says all this weird stuff. It's like, well, if you read it this way, he predicted Hitler. It's like so stupid. I agree. Okay. So anyway. But I don't know how I started talking about ancient aliens. I'm not sure either. Uh, you were talking about Fab and uh, his... Oh, his... his so his, Fab said, could it be could it that be? the virus scanning <laughs> companies are writing viruses? That's, it's in their interest. That seems like a good place to end before your battery runs out. Yeah, it sounds like <laughs> it's true. Yes, that's correct. We had trouble with our... We had we had technical difficulties with our recording at the beginning of the show. So hopefully the recording came out and Dan does his magic and it all sounds good. And we'll be back uh, in two weeks uh, with another show. Thanks for listening. Reason Freedom is produced by Dan Lynch of Pod Factory and can be found at podfactory.org. Thanks to Mike Tarantino for our theme music. This episode of Reason Freedom is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 United States license. You can follow Reason Freedom, Bradley, and Karen on Identica, and also read Bradley's and Karen's blogs. Links can be found on the Reason Freedom website, faith.us. That's faif.us. Thank you. You pretty much. Uh, I haven't actually stopped the recording yet. I'm sorry. Okay, now I'm going to stop the recording.